Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin and my guest today is Chloe Ashby. Chloe is an award-winning arts journalist and author. Since graduating from the Courtauld Institute of Art, she's written for publications such as the TLS, The Guardian, FT Life and Arts and The Spectator. She's also a regular contributor and former editor at Monocle magazine. Welcome to Monocle Reads and welcome back to Midori House. Thank you, Georgina. Thank you for having me and for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just tell us a a bit of history because how long did you work here? I worked here for a grand total of five years and I loved it. I really loved it. And it was here where where I started writing wet paint. So I had been here for three years, I think. You know, always wanted to be a journalist and then sort of got to the point where I thought, kind of want a challenge I want to try something new so I signed up for this creative writing course that was 10 weeks one evening a week my former boss Dan I hope this doesn't get him in trouble kindly let me leave slightly early on a Wednesday evening to get there and as part of this course you were supposed to write the first chapter of a novel and at that point you know I had no plan I had I had no grand plans to write a novel but I I did it and I had great fun and I carried on and for a while I just wrote when I felt like it and I did it because I was enjoying it and after a while I thought, you know, maybe this could be a book and I started to do what I think a lot of writers do and get up and write for an hour before work and that hour very quickly became the best part of my day and eventually wet paint sort of grew from there. Now, I remember us having conversations about writing classes and and how best to go about it, what, four years ago, probably? Yes, yes, it it was a long old time ago. And yeah, this is something I've learned publishing, writing a book, publishing a book. It's a long, old, rickety rollercoaster of a journey. But Mm. yeah, it's worth, I think actually one of the biggest things I've learned is that it's worth taking your time with it. I think for a while, you know, once I decided actually, I do want this to be a book. I want I want to try and get it published. I felt almost that I was in a rush, and I don't know why that was, but I think it really pays to take your time and, you know, to just sit with it and also sit apart from it, so put it away and forget about it for a while and come back to it mm. with fresh eyes, you know, which is what your editor will then do anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember us discussing the, the merits of various writing courses. Tell us about why you chose the one you did and how how that helped. I'm, I'm really thinking here mm. of, of you speaking to potential would-be writers in our audience. Yeah, so, well, so actually I ended up doing two. So the one that I mentioned just now was at City University. And that was, it was quite a quick course. It was a very kind of accessible course. Anybody could do it. It was affordable, which was something I thought about at the time. And that, to me, was almost a test do I want to pursue this seriously? And I wanted to do that before taking on, you know, before kind of enrolling at a longer term course that was going to take up more of my time, attention. And later, at a later date, I ended up going to the Faber Academy, which they have this brilliant six month writing a novel course that is sort of gearing you up for the well, to try and publish a book, really. And it's sort of an alternative to a full-time creative writing course. And I think for me, one of the best things about it was being among other writers. I I didn't know any authors personally. I didn't definitely didn't have any friends who were sort of trying to pursue a career as an author. And so 
I was suddenly surrounded by like-minded people, but also totally different people, people from all walks of life, totally different backgrounds, doing all sorts of jobs. Obviously, I came from a journalism background, so I was writing in my day job anyway, but there were doctors, there were lawyers, there were all sorts. And and it was just great to kind of feel like you were part of a group, I think. And also the kind of critical response, having other people read your work very closely was invaluable. And with fiction writing, it feels, at least in the early days, it's quite a daunting thing to show your work to others. So feeling like you're in a sort of safe space mm. and, and having others read it is just the best thing. I mean, because there is an argument, isn't there? People often talk about whether or not you can be taught to write. Yes. Uh, what do you think? I think, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a tricky thing because obviously there is this idea of the romantic, tortured artist who toils away in their studio or their office and they're isolated and they don't engage with others and, and that it's this sort of, you know, something they're born with, a talent they're born with. And I do think that to an extent you have to have... I think to me it's more about the drive and the ambition because it's such a it's such a difficult thing to do that you have to really want it. I think that's the main thing. You have to really really want it. I think that these creative writing courses are wonderful actually and I think they open your eyes to just looking at text and engaging with text in another way. So it as well as making you a better writer, I think they make you better readers. Mm, mm, which is so important. Yeah. To be a writer, first be a reader. Exactly, yeah. so important, yeah. Let's turn to this lovely book now. It's about grief, it's about preying on women, I guess. It's about loneliness. But at the heart of it is a painting. Tell yes. us about the painting. Yes, so this painting, it is Edouard Manet's last painting. It's called A Bar at the Folie Bergère. And for anyone who is not familiar with the painting, it shows a woman standing behind a bar. On the bar are all these sort of lush, glossy items. There are champagne bottles topped with golden foil and beer bottles, clementines in a crystal bowl. And behind her is this sort of vast gold frame mirror and in the mirror, you can see the reflection of a crowded interior. So she's in this bar and everyone in the mirror is obviously having fun, having a great time. They're in what was then called a cafe concert in Paris, but it was really kind of a glorified beer hall. But everyone in the mirror is a blur. And in contrast, the barmaid is sort of high definition. She's really hyper-realized. And what has always struck me about this painting and what you know, what gets Eve, my protagonist, is that you can't tell what she's thinking. So she is staring out. She's sort of looking out and down and a little to, I think it's the left, it may be the right, but she's avoiding your gaze and you can't tell if she is sad or maybe she's bored, maybe she's tired at the end of this long, long shift working in this um, beer hall. But ultimately she is alone and she's alienated and she is the object of the male gaze, which you then recognise when you see that there's a slightly sinister-looking man standing, staring intently at her. Mm, mm. And the fact that her reflection in the mirror is different from how she actually is. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think the first time I saw the painting in the flesh, I really almost didn't get past her face because there is something so arresting about 
her expression, which is so enigmatic and hard to read. But when I did then take in this man who, you know, he has this cane and a top hat and he's got this sort of goatee and a moustache. And when I saw him and then I recognised that the reflection was so disjointed, it throws you and it makes you wonder about the painting's logic, which to me is, is sort of modern life, you know. It's all... Things are strange and these are kind of precarious gender relations going on and we're all sort of trying to figure it out as we go along. And at the time, I think Manet was really criticised and people thought he'd just messed it up, he'd messed up the painting. But I like to think it was intentional. Mm. I wonder how autobiographical this book is because Eve is 26, you were around about that age when you when you were writing it. And she was lonely, she was living in a big city, as were you. Yes, yeah. It's a thorny kind of question, isn't it? And I think often one that gets asked of women writers uh, exploring the female experience. And I've made it very hard for myself because, as you say, even I have a lot in common. I was her age when I wrote the book. We both studied art history. We both live in London. I studied at the Courtauld and she visits the Courtauld Gallery once a week. We share a favourite painting. But I think, you know, beyond these sort of surface similarities, these things we have in common, we're quite different people. I admire Eve in many ways because she is bold and brash and she she's very impulsive, uh, at times reckless, which is maybe not something to admire. But, you know, she has the guts to, when she becomes a life model, she has the guts to take her clothes off and pose in front of a room full of strangers. I think also, for me, the thing actually that we have in common beyond anything else, is that we've felt similar emotions. And actually what I hope is that that makes the book less autobiographical and more universal in a way, because I I hope that readers might relate to the way that Eve is feeling too. Mm-hmm. And she's feeling an awful lot because she's plunged into grief, isn't she? Yes, yes, she is. So Eve has sort of been, you know, scraping along for the past few years and relying on various small routines, among them her weekly visits to Mano's barmaid at the gallery. But really, since the death of her best friend, she, she's she been keeping everything and everyone at arm's length. But as always with these things, there are painful memories she can't shake. And eventually, her life, which is incredibly precariously maintained, begins to unravel. Mm, mm. There's a lot about the male gaze in there, of course, going back to what you were saying about the painting, and a lot of, I suppose, casual exploitation. Mm, there is. I think that... It's definitely something that I thought about very early on, this idea of seeing and being seen and women being on display. And I think that, in a way, it sort of looks back to my my degree and I was studying art history and I was thinking a lot about the way that women are portrayed in art. And also it harks back to sort of my own hang-ups that I've had in the past and the way that women are looked at in life and... It's definitely something that I wanted to explore in wet paint. Mm. I wonder, just sort of looking at your generation, what would you call yourself, a millennial? Yes, I think that's right. (laughs) (laughs) When we see the impacts of Me Too and and all the rest of it, I wonder how much has actually changed for women and if that casual, that casual misogyny that, that certainly my generation experienced all the time, now that you are calling it, does it still happen? I think it definitely still happens, yes. 
I think it's just that people take notice more. But I think, sadly, we're a way off, we're a way off it, it being a thing of the past. So, for example, I mean, early on in the book, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, um, Eve loses a job because she is touched inappropriately by a customer in a restaurant where she works. And her reaction, which may not have been the correct reaction, but she turns around and she slaps him. And that was her instant. It was it was almost like a, a knee jerk reaction, like when someone taps you, you know, just below the knee, yeah. and your knee, your leg flicks forward. And yes, uh, that's sort of the first of a, a string of unhappy experiences with men in the novel. But I would like to stress that, you know, there are also men in the book who who look out for Eve. And there's a wonderful character called Max who is a childhood friend, really, above all else, he is a friend, but he doesn't give up on her, and he looks at her in the way that she wants to be looked at. Kleptomania. Mm, mm. <laughs> That's a really interesting side of it, because Eve kind of casually nicks things. She does, she does. She would call it borrowing. Um, but yes, you're probably right that it is. It is more stealing. Eve is Eve is struggling. Eve is grappling with so many things, and... Her way of dealing with what is going on in her head is by, well, one, she uses humour as a coping mechanism. She makes a lot of jokes. She she says she's fine. She acts as if everything is OK. But for her, the borrowing of other people's things, such as her flatmate's lipstick, sometimes very little things like a stick of chewing gum, it, it sort of builds and she, she starts to steal slightly more valuable items as the book goes on, but... For her, it's almost like a quick hit, a quick release, and somehow it provides comfort and it takes her out of her body for a moment and takes her out of her head and the chaos that is mounting inside her head. Mm. And is it a way of her sort of, I don't know, trying on other identities? Yes, it is. It is. It's a way of her imagining what life might be like for someone, say, who owns an expensive burgundy nail polish. She thinks, well, maybe if I sort of brush this onto my fingernails, I'll feel how the owner of this nail polish feels and I'll feel more in control. Mm. There's such a lovely kind of development of these two distinct characters alongside each other and they kind of inform and enhance each other. I wonder if you could just unpick that, Eve and Grace as friends. Mm, yes. So it was really important to me, I think, early on in the book to establish their friendship and just how close they were because if you don't have that as a reader, you wonder why Eve is is still struggling quite so much, as much as she is. And the way that I have built Grace into the book is via flashbacks. So these flashbacks sort of start out fairly lengthy and they're quite, you know, there's quite big gaps between them. And they provide snapshots of Grace and Eve at university and the way that they were. And they were sort of apart from the crowd. You know, they they were kept themselves to themselves. And they were quite silly in a way and young, I think, which I think is why they, why they weren't always welcomed by others. But within those flashbacks, Grace is addressed as by you, by the second person, which was a way of kind of creating intimacy. And then as the book goes on, the flashbacks become shorter, they become quicker... And it's just a way of um, of sort of emphasising how present Grace still is in Eve's life. Mm. I, I love the way that that grows by the way that you, you write it, mm. the, the way you structure it. Now, was that something that came organically? 
It was. I always wanted Grace to be a big part of the book. I mean, for me, for me, the book is about Eve and... Eve is sort of, you know, it's her story, but I I needed Grace to be there. And I think that it was once I got to the end and it was in the editing process that I really thought consciously about building up and fleshing out that relationship. Interestingly, again, I want to be careful of giving any spoilers, but towards the end when, you know, the tension builds and it becomes quite dramatic towards the end, those very quick flashbacks that kept coming, that happened totally naturally. So it was more the early stuff that came later. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the autobiographical nature mm. of, of, of some of the book. And of course, as you were writing it, you were working here at Monocle. And I wonder, because obviously anybody listening to this programme is probably a, a Monocle fan too, how much of that comes through in the text? Oh, interesting question. I think, I mean, I remember when I was writing this book, because I was working full time, I was constantly writing little notes on my phone, looking around. I would be walking to work, which was something I did every day, and I would be, I'd be jotting notes down and, and looking around me. And I think I'm not sure that they're, you know, Monocle employees can rest assured there's no one in this book. I actually spoke to a friend and former colleague uh, called Bill last night and I, I told him, Bill, don't worry, there is a character called Bill in the book. It's not you. The Bill in the book has a lazy eye. He's slightly leery. You wouldn't necessarily want to be associated with him. So, but I think, you know, it's a really important thing as a writer to be getting out there and seeing the world. And so I am really glad that I you know, was working full-time while I was doing it and that I was getting out there and seeing things and hearing things. Again, going back to the flashbacks, they happen because Eve will see something or she'll hear something or she'll smell something and then the past sort of snags at her because of that and you know, maybe that wouldn't have, have happened if I wasn't getting out there too. Mm. Would you say that at its core this book is really about mental health? Yes, I think Definitely. And I think that it's something I wanted to explore mental health really generally, but also the lasting repercussions of mental ill health at university. I think that you could call Wet Paint a coming of age story in a way. And this period, so Eve is 26, she's recently graduated from university. She's in what I have sort of started calling this hazy mid space between education and adulthood and it's a time when you're sort of forced out into the world and you have to figure out who and what you want to be what you want to do and there are opportunities and it's exciting but it's also a really wobbly and strange time and when you add trauma into the mix the kind of trauma that Eve's been through you can find yourself wobbling on the edge Mm, mm. and anxiety of course plays into this hugely yes anxiety yes that's something else I wanted to almost provide recognition of so recognition of unspoken anxieties and sadness and when I was you know when I was writing about the way that Eve is feeling at times throughout the book there's one particular scene that I can think of uh, which is on Christmas day and she's alone and she's walking she goes for a walk and she thinks that you know it's something that families do on Christmas they go for a walk but she's by herself and moments like that when I I really wanted the reader to feel mm. Eve I would think back to how maybe I'd felt in the past at certain certain points and 
and try and explore that on the page and articulate it. Mm, it was certainly incredibly evocative. And I mean, the thing is, we're talking here about the sadness and the grief and the anxiety and all the rest of it. It's also funny. Good. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, um, friends of mine are surprised when people say this because apparently I'm not so funny. So this is obviously all Eve. But yes, it is funny. And I think that it needs to be, you know, otherwise it would be a sad dark book lots of people describe it as as dark and it is but there's definitely light among the dark too and I wanted it to be uplifting to a degree as well you know I didn't want there to be this total happy ending where everything is fine because that's not real life Mm. but I wanted there to be hope that was really important for me and I think that a big part of that was because Eve, you know, having spent so much time with her, she feels real to me. And I wanted her to have that. <laughs> We're talking, and you are obviously a debut novelist. And I mean, for, for me, it's absolutely thrilling to be talking to somebody at the beginning of their career who's clearly going to go places. But I wonder how it feels for you, because everything is ahead. You don't know yet how this book's going to be received by by the general public. It hasn't been reviewed yet. It's all still to come. This must be a really scary but exciting time. Yes, it is. It's funny. That's exactly when people have been asking me how I've been feeling in the run-up. I have been saying excited and terrified. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But actually, in the past week, I have just been excited and I've had the most kind of special publication week I actually woke up to a very lovely review on publication day which was my first and my first sort of you know proper standalone review and it was very very generous and the woman uh, Emily Rhodes who reviewed it just had read it so closely and understood what I was trying to do so that was the biggest confidence boost and seeing it in bookshops is kind of you know pure joy walking in and seeing it there I need to work on my signature my signature is not nearly as artistic as it should be it's just my name (laughs) so that's something that watch this space (laughs) absolutely well congratulations and I'm going to ask you to practice your signature on my own proof copy of this wonderful book Uh, Chloe Ashby thank you so much for talking to us on Monocle Reads thank you so much for having me Georgina Wet Paint by Chloe Ashby is published by Trapeze and it's out now You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researcher, Georgia Bispas. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>